right, we've been uh, working through the book of Ephesians here, verse by verse. We're in uh, chapter 3 today. Now, if I were to ask you what were uh, some, if we were to maybe come up with a list of distinguishing marks of what it means to be a Christ follower, I mean, we could probably come up with a big list of things, like, you know, it's someone, a uh, Christ follower someone who has faith and trust in Jesus, a uh, Christ follower someone who sees Jesus as, as Lord and King, a uh, Christ follower someone who is uh, connected with other followers of Jesus, a uh, Christ follower someone who prays, I mean, we could come up with a whole list of things, but... One thing that, w- that I didn't even think of that would really necessarily have to be on that list until I've really been looking through this book, and that is unity. That one of the distinguishing marks of a Christ follower is a desire to live out uh, the aspect of unity amongst Christ followers. Uh, this book, all, pretty much most of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, and most of chapter 4 deal with the main theme of unity in this text. And you start scanning through a lot of uh, uh, the uh, New Testament books. Uh, it's just one of the major themes. It's a theme of unity. That we as Christ followers need to strive to be living in unity with others who are following Jesus. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, this is not, not an easy thing. Because we naturally want to distance ourselves from anyone who is kind of different than us, who thinks differently, looks differently, is from a different race or culture. We, we tend to sort of, you know, kind of pull back a little bit. But again, Christ, as we talked about, is the end of the dividing wall. And we are all one in Jesus. And in Jesus, we are to be walking together in unity. And this is, again, not an easy thing. It's not easy even in marriage or in any kind of relationship. And so as Paul talks about this, we're going to be uh, talking about this again uh, this week. And so well, let's jump into our text. Be- picking it up in verse 1. For this reason, again, Paul has been talking about uh, unity amongst Jews and Gentiles and the end of the dividing wall. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, uh, Paul was not a prisoner like of Jesus in, in the sense that Jesus like put him in jail and locked him up. I mean, hopefully that's not your view of Jesus, that he's going to chuck you in prison. Uh, but he's in prison because of Jesus, because of the message of Jesus, because of, of the gospel. And it's for the sake of you Gentiles. Uh, the reason Paul is in prison is because he was actually trying to bring about unity between the Gentiles and the Jews. Paul would have never ended up in prison if he had just had spent his time amongst the Jews as a Christian. He would have never spent his time in prison if he just spent his time among the Gentiles as a Christian. But because he was trying to associate between the two groups and trying to help them understand that they were one is actually the reason he ends up in a Roman prison. And in this Roman prison, he is chained to a Roman guard and he's kind of in and out of prison throughout his life. He spends about five and a half to six years in prison. And uh, eventually he will get released and then He gets put back in prison under Nero, and finally he is executed, because Nero was very, very anti-Christian. But even in prison, uh, he was not sitting there, well, like, well, so much for ministry, there's nothing I can do in prison, you know, maybe he can pray. He uses that opportunity of being in prison to, to actually write a lot of the New Testament books. And it's just a reminder that no matter what your situation is today, you can be used by God. 
Uh, you might feel that I can't be used by God because, because I, I, my health is bad, or I can't be used by God because of this situation in my family, or I can't be used with God because I'm struggling with this sin, or whatever it might Whatever it is, God can still use you. And he can use you in incredible ways, even if you find yourself in prison uh, like Paul. And uh, it, he was in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. I mean, this was his heart. As we've talked about this verse, Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he was trying to put an end to this division. And a lot of the New Testament, most of the conflict in the churches is between these, this group of Jews and the Gentiles. They're constantly fighting amongst each other. And Paul keeps reminding them, you need to be one. You need to, you need to come together. And that's what we're going to be talking about more today. Now, you notice in your Bible, if you open up, uh, the NIV has a dash after Gentiles. Uh, some of your Bibles might have a dot, dot, dot. And the reason is, is because Paul, when he mentions the word Gentile, he, he gets a little diverted. And he doesn't actually return to his original thought until verse th uh, 14. And so today we're going to be looking at Paul's diversion. And, uh, and so let's jump into his diversion. This diversion was about Gentiles. He, he thought about the Gentiles. And again, he just goes, wow, the Gentiles, they're, they're included in God's plan. And he goes back to the idea of unity. So he says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly, which may have been a previous letter or perhaps chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to talk about that mystery in a moment. But notice what he says. That God's grace, he says, was given to me for you. That God gave Paul a certain amount of grace that was not meant to, for him to, to keep to himself. It was actually meant to give away. And God has done the same with each of our lives. That not all the grace that God has given us is just to be held for ourselves. That there's a certain amount of grace that God has given you that is to be given away. That you are administrator, if you will, of God's grace. And often we think about grace, especially sort of in our individualistic Western society. We always think about things kind of as individualistic, like I have grace for my salvation and my forgiveness and, and my help. And me, me is always about me, myself and I and our culture. But there is some grace that God has given you that you're not to keep. That you are actually to give to others. This is also a reminder of why, as Christians, why it's just vital that we need to be connected to other Christians. Because you will never, ever, ever experience the fullness of God's grace apart from the church or a gathering of other Christ followers. Because there's some grace that you need that is going to be found through God working through another person. Because God has grace in me for you and you have grace in yourselves for me that God uses. And you will never be filled with as much passion for Jesus and the fullness of grace until you're connected with other, other believers and it's just similar in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in his various forms. That God actually gives us a certain amount of grace that we are to be, as Paul said, administrators of, we're to be stewards of, and we're to be wise stewards in terms of not keeping it for ourselves, to be passing it on. And, uh, and it often has to do with how you're wired, how you're gifted. It's in various forms. And, and right now, as I use my teaching gift, I am actually, God's grace is working through me towards you. 
And if you are here with an open heart, saying, I want to hear God, you will actually receive God's grace today. I mean, if you're just here trying to pick apart my message and find out how many mistakes I make, you're going to miss it. But if you have an open heart to receive God's grace, uh, you're, you're going to experience a greater level of God's grace. And it's not just me, but all of us have a role here today. Because all of you are carrying a little bit of God's grace. Some of the musicians shared grace with you this morning. There's going to be people up praying who will pray. Even just when you're praying for someone who is sitting here without even talking to them. When you, after the service, when you go and encourage somebody or just smile at somebody, uh, we're just sharing God's grace. I mean, sometimes you think about what would the church be like if we all took this seriously? That every time we got together, that we would just say, you know, I'm not leaving this place, this small group. I'm not leaving this Sunday morning service. I'm not meeting, uh, leaving this ministry or whatever without giving away my grace. Could you imagine how people would feel encouraged and built up and strengthened if we took this seriously? And we are to be stewards of this grace that he has given us. So don't leave this place without giving away grace. Otherwise, someone's going to miss out on the very grace of God. And then he goes on and says, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery. This is the mystery. Now, mystery in the New Testament is not like the way we use mystery. We use the word in terms of, it's a mystery. No one's going to ever figure it out. Mystery in the New Testament is always something that's been revealed. And it's something to do with revelation. Now, you may be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it had, has been now revealed. This idea has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is, now here's the mystery that has been revealed, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. And again, he brings up this idea of unity. That through the gospel, Jews and Gentiles, and, and there was no greater division between people than Jews and Gentiles. Which means that if there's this division between Jew and Gentiles and they're brought together, then every other group that is different from each other is to be brought together in Christ. Heirs, heirs together, members together, sharers together. And this, by the way, is part of the gospel. That this is a gospel issue. And this is why unity must be a distinguishing mark for us as Christians, because it's a gospel issue. This is not like some essential or non-essential on the side that we can do or not do. This is actually part of the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross to bring unity between man and God and uh, each other together in Christ. As uh, New Testament uh, scholar Klein Snodgrass said this, uh, We know what is required. We are to live in unity. Uh, we are to live unity. We are not asked to be like other Christians. Again, unity never means like that, that we all have to be exactly the same. No, not at all. Diversity is a good thing, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. We are not asked to be like other Christians or agree with them, but to recognize that we are one with them and share the same Lord and the same benefits. We may not write people off any more than one part of the body can dismiss another part. What this text, and he's talking about this text, underscores is that unity is not some non-essential, some afterthought, or some byproduct of faith, but it is at the heart of Christianity. The revelation that came in Christ was a revelation about unity. If we do not proclaim unity, we have not proclaimed the gospel. If we do not live unity, we have missed the gospel's impact. 
that part of the gospel's impact, that part of the gospel is reconciliation. Uh, we, I mean, the, the, the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles was, was enormous. And they were constantly fighting over things like circumcision and, you know, could you eat sacrificed meat or not eat sacrificed meat? I mean, this day was holy. Well, no, all days are holy. And he did not say to them, well, you know, you guys are so different, you should just start another denomination. Do you know there's no biblical warrant at all in the New Testament for denominations? But there is a ton in this book about unity. But because, again, we have such a hard time with people who are different than us, we tend to say, well, it's just easier if we start our own group. You know what? It is easier, but it's not what God necessarily always wants. The conflict between Jews and Gentiles um, is one of the reasons why Paul actually wrote the, wrote the book of Romans. Uh, in 49 AD, there was the emperor Claudius actually kicked out all of the Jews out of Rome. And because there was all this conflict, and uh, he kicked them all out. And so the churches actually found themselves as being that they're all just Gentiles because all the Jews were removed. Gentiles were only in leadership. Gentiles were doing worship. Gentiles were doing all the, there was no Jews. And you know what? It was probably easy for them because same culture, same backgrounds, same similar thinking. It was probably very easy. But then uh, when Nero took the throne, initially he allowed all the Jews back into Rome. And so all of a sudden, Jews started coming back into the church. People of a radically different culture, radically different thinking, different perspectives on different things. They're coming back into church and boom, there is conflict because they're different. They started fighting over, you know, again, holy days. You know, they were for the, the Saturday and the other Gentiles were mostly like, you know, every day is kind of holy to the Lord. And, and Jews are like, you never eat sacrificed meat. And, and uh, the Gentiles are like, you know, it's not a big deal because I know there's only one God. So, you know, it's okay. Uh, the, circumcision was a big issue. So Paul steps in and writes the book of Romans. It's one of the themes you need to realize when you read the book of Romans. You need to read it through that lens. But he, he, he goes on this. This is what he says to these guys who are fighting with each other. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Again, they were fighting over food, for God has accepted them. Again, accepted both of you, because part of the gospel is reconciliation. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the, uh, uh, and they will stand for the, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Is Paul saying, look, they're both trying to love Jesus and honor Jesus. This church group is trying to honor Jesus, and so is this one. So, you know, settle down a little bit. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And then it says, says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand, we will all stand before God, uh, God's judgment seat. And then verse 19, he says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. 
Notice Paul didn't say, because you guys are so radically different, again, that you guys should just start your own Jewish church and you can have your Gentile church, just think it will just be much easier. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you guys work together because unity is an essential piece of the gospel. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, diversity is one of the best things for the church. It's one of the hardest things, but it's one of the best things. But it's really, really hard to do. Uh, I've, I've read a number of books through my ministry uh, career, uh, especially lately just studying this on diversity and unity and, and conflict. And, you know, you know, a lot of people just end up quitting, especially when they're dealing with different races or cultures, because they just say it's just so hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we should quit. Because the heart, again, is for that we are centered around Jesus. And what I want to talk about today just for a little bit is the issue of identity. Because if we can understand this piece, it'll really help us in learning to live uh, in unity with other Christians who are radically different than us. Uh, the idea of identity, and we've talked about this a lot, especially in chapter 1, is that all of us have a strong desire to have worth, uh, to feel wanted, to feel needed. We, we, we try to find our identity in something, whether it's another person or you know, a sports team even, or we just, or are always looking for identity. And we often will uh, find people or groups that are very similar to us to use those. We'll draw them close and, and we build our identity into those things. And anything that hurts our identity that's different than us, we will push those things away. And they've done lots of studies on this, like of uh, university sports, for instance. They did a study where if their university team won, they said the language is always this, our team won. Because it adds to their identity. At the same time, if their team lost, the language is almost always, they lost. Because we distance ourselves from anything that is different or hurts our identity. And we're the same way within the church. Anything that adds to our identity, we will draw close. Anything that hurts our identity, we will begin to actually push away. Tim Keller said uh, this way, Our need for worth or identity is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. We make into our God, if you will. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think ourselves as highly ir irreligious, that everybody will find their identity in something. It might be your job, it might be in, in a person, it might be in your money, it might be in sports or hockey or, you know, pornography, or it, could be, it could be a host of different things. But whatever we place our identity, we essentially make into a God. And if anybody threatens our God or our identity, we will tend to get kind of angry and frustrated and we will, and we will pull away. Now, as followers of Jesus, it is very clear that our identity is to be in Christ. It's the most common way a Christian is described, described in the Bible. It's not Christian. It's you're in Christ. That all of our identity is to be found in Christ. And if we can land there, I tell you, it goes endless miles to creating unity. But the problem is that we will often find our identity in other things other than Jesus, and that will lead us to division. And if you find yourself always in conflict, a lot of times it's because you've placed your identity in something other than Christ. And here's some things that we can deify in our life. Uh, we can deify or try to get our identity from our flavor of Christianity other than Christ. And some people worship their flavor of Christianity more than they do Jesus. And if you deify your flavor of Christianity 
and someone comes along with a different flavor or a different perspective, you will automatically kind of demonize those people, push them away because they're a threat to your identity. But if your identity is in Jesus, you're okay. Um, I mean, and, and it's funny how this works. And, and, and if you know your natural tendency, then you can, you can recognize this. But it, it'll happen like this. I mean, uh, um, I mean you, you say you meet another Christian. And you just meet them on the street. And you're talking for a little while. All of a sudden, you find out they're a Christian. You're like, wow, you are a Christian. That is amazing. I'm a Christian too. Unity is built all, just all of a sudden. There's about a unity. And you start saying, well, hey, what kind of worship music do you like? Well, I like Chris Tomlin. Hey, I like Chris Tomlin too. And, and you know, what kind of Bible do you like? I like the NIV or the ESV. Well, hey, me too. That's great. And then you say, hey, what kind of church do you go to? Well, you know, I go to a Reformed Presbyterian. Well, you know, I go to the Assemblies of God. And also, like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, that means you're a Calvinist and I'm an Arminius. That means that you're more charismatic and I'm not. A, and all of a sudden, there's this, there's this tendency to say, well, I can't be unified in the same way. I mean, you were when you just understood that you were both Christians, but now when you get to the nitty gritties, and it's because often we get our identity from our flavor of Christianity rather than Jesus. And this works in all hosts. I mean, you could take hockey, for instance. Um, you, two people get together. They both love hockey. Their identity isn't hockey. They can get along fine. But if those two people put their identity in a team, you know, what team do you like? Well, I like the Flames. Well, I like Canucks. Well, you know, I'm not hanging out with you. <laughs> Unity is broken because their identity is found in the team rather than in the sport. And again, they've done lots of studies. Like they did a study of European students, for instance, in Europe. And they found out that if uh, European students had their main identity as a European, they could get along with anybody in the European country quite well. But if their main identity was, you know, I'm from France, that's my identity, or I'm British, that is my identity, they had a very difficult time getting along with students of other places because they placed their identity in their Frenchness or their Britishness rather than in their Europeanness. And as Christians, we are called to have our identity in Christ. And therefore, I can run into a Christian who is quite different than me but still loves Jesus, and I'm, I'm one with them. They're not a threat to me. I can have amazing theological conversations with me, with them, even though I totally may disagree with them, and we can look through the Bible, but in the end, I'm okay, because my identity is not in my flavor of Christianity, it's in Jesus. Right. And this is how you can have wonderful, calm, good conversations through the theology. We can challenge each other where iron can sharpen iron, because if your identity is in your flavor of Christianity, they're a threat, and you will begin to argue, you'll begin to get mad, and the conversation is done. So be very careful that your identity is not in your flavor. Be very careful that you're not worshiping your flavor of Christianity. We're going to be worshiping Jesus. Now, the other thing along with this can be our desire to be right. That we can actually de deify our rightness. And by, by this uh, very much applies to marriage as well. This applies to any other relationship. That if your identity comes from you being right, if someone threatens your rightness, is rightness you will fight you'll push them away. And for a lot of Christians, their, uh, their identity comes from, you know, I have the whole Bible figured out. I know, I know all this passage. I have my little theological box, and if anybody threatens my box, I just, I just cannot be around them, and I just can't talk, and i got to pull away because their identity is found in their box rather than in Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller again put it this way. He says, Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god, in other words, we, we, we deify something other than Jesus. 
This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you've become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always throw contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as sinners saved by grace. Instead, they trust in their rightness for their views to make themselves feel superior. And it's going to happen in marriage, too. i got to prove them right. My identity comes from right. And so whenever there's a challenge from the spouse, you've got to push your way. You've got to condemn them. You've got to put them down because your identity is from your rightness. That is not where identity comes from. It comes from Jesus. Uh, this doesn't mean doctrine's not important. I mean, I, I love doctrine. I took a master's degree in biblical studies. I love doctrine. But only good doctrinal conversations can happen between two people who have their identity in Christ. The worst theological conversations I've ever had are with people whose identity in their box, and they're not willing to listen. They just argue, and the conversation's closed. And those aren't fun. I mean, let's enter into brilliant theological conversations. Let's push each other. Let's grow each other. Let's, let's battle in, in friendly ways with our views. But let our identity be in Christ so that we still may be one in this place. Uh, one more. Uh, we can also deify people's opinions. Place this as our God. And this actually happened to Peter. I mean, this can happen to the best of us. It, this happens to me. When I begin to place my identity in the wrong thing, and I see people as a threat, and even the disciple, the apostle Peter, this happened to him. Look what happens in Galatians 2. It says, Peter first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James, this is from the, the, the Jewish Christian group, came, Peter eat, wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He, he separated, he pushed them away. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter was afraid of someone's opinion. And he deifies that opinion to, that, that's got to be, that's where am I getting my identity from? So he pulls away from unity, and Paul has to confront him. And sometimes we can be afraid to build unity among Christians because we have friends who are not into that kind of thing. Or we have friends that are really solid in this box and then we were afraid to step out or, or we follow this teacher and doesn't agree with this teacher so I gotta, you know, I make that uh, teacher I listen to on the internet my, my uh, he's my, where I get my identity from and all my theological advice from it. It's gotta be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. Uh, Christina Cleveland, <clears throat> who wrote a great book called Disunity in Christ, said this, Said research conducted by Fine Spencer and others suggest that those who uh, uh, degrade other groups are doing so at least partly because their identity is threatened. According to this research, the very presence of divisions in the body of Christ indicates that many of us are still fighting the identity wars of our adolescence. In other words, we haven't got this figured out. That we got to keep putting our identity in Jesus. Keep putting it in Jesus. Because when it lands on something lower, it'll just lead to conflict and division. And, uh, and you've heard me harp on this a lot. And this is, this is part of who we are as, as a covenant church. Where we want to make a place where our identity is based on Jesus. And we can have a wide flavor of Christians. 
from all walks of Christianity and, and cultures and, and, and statuses. And, and uh, let me just read something from our statement uh, just to remind you of who we are. Covenanters, that's us, have offered to one another theological and personal freedom where the biblical and historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations of the will and purposes of God. This commitment to freedom has kept the covenant church together when it would have been easier to break fellowship and further divide Christ's body. To some, such freedom is no freedom at all. Uh, some who like to have their little box and it's, everybody's got to think the same way that this is very difficult. Uh, to some, uh, this commitment to freedom has kept... Uh, uh, this com oh, where am I? <laughs> to some, such freedom is no freedom at all. They would rather have uh, the, marching, uh, the marching orders. It is not easy to be free. But such limitations of freedom show not wisdom, but immaturity. Freedom is not for the self-indulgent or self-aggrandizement, but to serve and love God, in whom alone is found true freedom. The covenant church cherishes this freedom in Christ and recognizes, as one of our forebears put it, that freedom is a gift in the last of all gifts to mature. And this is really true. I don't know if you've, I, this I found in my life. Now, when I first became a Christian, I was super narrow and really judgmental and black and white. And I, in fact, I remember early on in ministry, I had a pastoral review, and one of the things that came up was that I was judgmental, because I was, because it, it seems to be something that, and I find this, that tend, like Christians who have been Christian for a long, long time tend to be the most gracious uh, sometimes, because it sometimes, for some, is one of the last gifts to mature. In the meantime, there will be questions and conflict, and we realize that, that there will be questions and conflict in this group. We don't split of those. We, we talk about those in a mature way. Full maturity and full understanding await the day when the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our God and the kingdom of Christ, when he shall reign forever and ever. And one day we'll figure out that in the end that I was right, right? <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, we offer freedom to one another. Since the covenant people, freedom is not something we claim for ourselves, but we offer to one another. We say, hey, you think different than me. Welcome to this place, if you love Jesus. You, let's talk about this. Let's sit down and open up our Bibles. Let's discuss it, because our identity is in Christ, and there is no threat whatsoever when we can sit down and have a, a conflict and still disagree. Maybe you all learn something from you. And, and I tell you, I've learned the most from people who think differently than me. And uh, it's true. And studies have shown that churches that make the best decisions are diverse churches. Churches that make the worst decisions tend to be churches where everybody is kind of looks the same, thinks the same, and acts the same. And we don't want to be that place because that is not uh, the gospel. All right. Last couple of verses here and we're done. I became a servant, Paul goes on, of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And Paul is just thrilled that he can be used to be a messenger to the Gentiles. But notice what he says. Uh, he says here that he is less than the least of all the Lord's people. And he's this apostle who wrote uh, more New Testament books than anybody else. And he says, I'm the least of the least of the Lord's people. And he doesn't say this as some sort of false humility. You know, like, I'm just so worthless and pathetic and, you know, I can't do anything. But God can do everything. I can't do anything. I mean, 
I hope you're over that. Uh, you are loved by God, chosen by God, forgiven by God. Uh, God loves you. Um, but what he is talking about is the idea that, I mean, he didn't walk with Jesus like the other apostles did. Uh, he came to know Jesus afterwards. He was uh, actually uh, part of, he uh, was in, uh, put Christians to death. I mean, and then he becomes a, a Christian. So he's saying, look, I'm the least deserving of any other Christian to receive this, uh, this ministry to preach to the Gentiles. And we need to have that same kind of heart. Not some false humility, but if you can walk around and just say, you know, I'm the least deserving in this room of God's grace. I'm the least deserving of the gifts that he has given me of forgiveness. That changes unity. Uh, unity is broken when you walk around like, I'm so much better than everybody else. You know, if everyone just think like me, you know, this place would be fine, you know. I got the whole Bible figured out, and I got Christianity. It's just, this is, these are all the points. You just let, that's what wrecks the unity. But if you can come in this place, you know, I'm the least deserving Christian here. You know, I came from so far, and, and God has done so, all of a sudden, just grace begins to flow. And this is what you see out of Paul's grace. It's a good thing to follow in the footsteps that although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. I hope that's upon your heart. And then he says, his intent was, to, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in this heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. I mean, I thought about doing a whole sermon on this text. This is amazing. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And part of this has to do with unity. This is a, a theme. Remember what Jesus said in John 17? Twice that our unity was to be a sign to the world that God exists. Because everywhere else in this world, we see division and conflict. And people should walk in the church and say, well, here's a place where people get along. Even though they're totally different, there must be something amazing going on. This, this must, there must be a God because this is impossible. That's what the church is to be about that we are to be uh, manifesting God's wisdom. But it's interesting what it says here. It says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And in this context, he's talking about evil forces. The church is to manifest God's glory to the evil forces. And evil forces are always about dividing, killing, stealing. Divisions, conflict, quarreling. Galatians 5 are all acts of the sinful nature. Satan is constantly trying to divide your marriage. He is constantly trying to divide this church. He's constantly trying to dig in there. And one of the ways we fight back is by pursuing unity. When we can be unified, even though you don't like the worship song, when we can be unified, even though you think this sermon is too long or sucks or whatever, when you can be unified, you're fighting against the enemy. And then lastly, so we can be done. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, reformed, charismatic, Presbyterian, Baptist, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. I mean, if anything, they should be discouraged that, that, that there might not be someone fighting for them, but there was someone fighting for them, and it was Paul. And we need to be constantly fighting for the underdog as well. Hey, come on in. Everybody is welcome at the foot of the cross. There's no footstools. There's no ladder that we're all equal, that we're all undeserving, but we all have received grace in Jesus' name. And this is the heart of the gospel and the heart of Christianity and the heart of this table uh, 
where we're going to come to at this point. And as I've been reminding you the last month, this table, again, uh, sometimes we just think about communion as, you know, me and Jesus. We think that way in this individualistic culture, but actually this communion is also about unity. This is us coming together. That in 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about one loaf in many pieces, that all of us take a little nibble of the bread, yet we all leave here, but we make up one loaf. As Paul said, dealing with communion, he said this, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And we're like, well, I don't want to be guilty of sinning. That sounds bad to eat this in an unworthy manner. Well, what's the unworthy manner? He says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. And here's the unworthy manner. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, meaning the church, our brothers and sisters, all united in Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And the whole context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 communion is disunity. Again, they were fighting. And Paul says, look, if you're undiscerning, if you're not recognizing unity in Christ and you come to this table, you're drinking judgment on yourself. And so this table is a table of reconciliation between us and God and us and each other. And so as I always say, when you come to this table, uh, don't be afraid to give someone a hug. Look at them in the eye. You know, say, forgive me for how I hurt you last week. It's a table to remind us that that we're in love with God and he's in love with us and that we're to love each other. And so we come to this table to remember Jesus. And it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The Bible says that he took bread. And after breaking it, he gave, uh, after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the sign of the new covenant sealed by my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we come here to remember what Jesus has done for us. And again, you can never separate us from the church because Christianity is, is a, a communal belief. So we come here to celebrate what he's done for us and done for every other person that has followed Jesus. And so I invite the worship team up. There's going to be a song that's being played in the background. And as it's being played, feel free to come up. Uh, and uh, connect with Jesus, connect with each other, and then we'll close our service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you of drawing difference together under the banner of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you have uh, made this church, the Junction Church, a place where there's diversity, and we continue to pray, God, that you continue to bring in various kinds of Christians and, and various kinds of people who, who don't believe in Jesus, that we can help them uh, learn about the goodness and love of Jesus. God, I pray continue to teach us about grace. Continue to teach us, God, about being the least deserving of, of all the Christians, that we might be givers and bestowers of your grace to one another. Uh, God, we love you. And we want to remember you as we come. And God, I pray as people come forward that you would do new work, that you do amazing things in people's lives as they come to this table of grace. God, that people might be healed of their sickness, that people might be healed of their anxiety, that people might be encouraged if they're down, that people might be refreshed in you, that people will get a glimpse, God, of who you truly and really are. And so, God, we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.